Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you'd like to support us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, by checking out our books over at autofocuslit.com books, which is where you can also find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it, which you can buy. You can also sign up for the newsletter, which is starting this year, over at autofocuslit.com email. You can also use the app you're on to rate the podcast or maybe write a quick review if you like it. And finally, of course, you can just tell some friends who you think might like the show. Okay, that's the advertisement. Here we go. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Jeff Alessandrelli. Jeff Alessandrelli is the author of several books, including the poetry collection Fur Not Light. His novel, And Yet, is being reissued this year by Future Tense Books. He is also the director and co-editor of the Small Presses, Phonograph Editions, and Bunny Press. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Jeff in conversation with Trey Moody. Trey Moody is the author of the poetry collection, Hot Oblivion, which is out now from Conduit Books, and Thought That Nature, which came out in 2014 from Saraband Books. He's been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Catherine A. Morton Prize in Poetry, and his poems have appeared in The Atlantic, The Believer, and New England Review. All right, let's get to it. This is Jeff Alessandrelli's conversation with Trey Moody. No, I'm in my office at Creighton in Omaha, Nebraska. Been teaching here now for seven and a half years and um but but you know in a previous nebraskan stint uh lived in lincoln for four years where we crossed paths for three of those i think we did cross <laughs> paths for three of those uh but you're you have no midwest background right where are you originally from no 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 uh i'm from san antonio texas and so, yeah, just grew up, you know, South Central Texas, rooting for the Spurs, um, accustomed to hot weather, which I've never really liked particularly, only in doses, and um, really good Tex-Mex food and um, barbecue. And it, Texas is so big. Where is San Antonio? You said South. So, it's like South Central. Yeah. So San Antonio is, it's like, if you were to drive from Houston, it's about three hours due west of Houston. Um, it's about 75 miles south, southwest-ish of Austin, down I-35. Um, it's, it takes about three hours, two and a half, to get to like Corpus Christi or the, the Gulf Coast. And it's, yeah, roughly about five hours to get to the uh, Mexico border. Yeah. Did you, what did your parents do? Well... My dad died when, when I was seven, um, uh, but my parents were divorced uh, by the time I was about five. So I grew up with 
a single mother basically who was a high school teacher and she studied um I, th- I believe biology some of the sciences in college but she didn't teach that in high school she taught uh, sort of business classes in high school and um, computer classes and things like that and so yeah so that's what she did and she and my grandmother raised me basically and um you know sort of just the standard I guess, single parent childhood in a lot of ways. When did you, your mom taught business classes? Yeah. In high, classes in high school. In high school? Mm-hmm. And your dad passed when you were seven. Um, when did you start even thinking about, I guess, writing? Well, really not until college, I don't think. But I mean, there were, when I think back, there were a lot of little moments that I think led me to becoming a writer probably. I remember um, particularly this this moment in fifth grade where I um, wanted to ask a classmate to be my valentine with one of the, you know, like I probably had those little hearts, candies or like nerds attached to a little note, but I also wrote her a poem. Um, and I I just remember that being kind of a, I don't know why I wrote her a poem. Maybe we were doing it in school or something like that, but that was looking back, I'm like, I I don't know where that came from. But then um, in middle school, I got really interested in, I think, interesting music. And in high school, I started playing the guitar. And I was also an athlete growing up for a lot of my life, but um, I didn't really identify uh, socially very much as an athlete. Um, I really wanted to be a musician. um, And so I think a lot of my drive or interest in you know, alternative music or whatever, or, uh, you know, music that was doing less mainstream things. Looking back, I think that was me looking for something to, to sort of wrap my mind around in challenging, interesting ways. And so then, you know, with all through high school, not really even thinking about poetry as a thing people did, or not, not even thinking about it at all. And then in college, probably my sophomore year, I think, um, you know, took a an American lit class and got introduced to some modernists that I thought were kind of interesting. But then was, I was interested in a lot of different subjects in college. I probably would have majored in like eight different things if I could have um, all in the humanities. But uh, I, I just found myself in a wanting to take more English classes. And so I was in a, a modern poetry lit class and just, that's where I really fell in love with like, you know, Stevens, uh, H.D., Stein, uh, Langston Hughes, Pound, uh, Williams, you know, all those all those folks. And it was just doing things to my my mind that I didn't know were possible. Um, And so ever since then, I was probably 19 or 20. And ever since then, I've, yeah, been been hooked. And in high school, I mean, you were playing guitar all through high school and you wanted to be a professional musician, like vaguely. Yeah, yeah, very vaguely, we'll say, yeah. Were you in bands? No, um, that's the thing. I mean, I, I could, you know, I could, I could play chord progressions pretty, pretty seamlessly, and, you know, play a mean Candlebox cover or whatever. But, um, yeah, but I couldn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any formal training at all, so I wasn't able to play skills or improvise with other people in retrospect that would have been great and that would have been amazing it's something i'm really uh attracted to with music now but at the time i was i could just play kind of solo i mean i would play with friends but we would just sort of take turns or play chords on top of each other but i did play um 
there was an ongoing open mic session uh, at this, there was a bar, a really crappy bar in San Antonio called, sorry, really crappy seafood restaurant called Krabby, Krabby Jack's, I think is what it was called. And they had an outdoor sort of annexed tiki bar that was part of the restaurant. And for some reason, the clientele there, it was like a biker bar. So it was just like leather clad folks. But they had this ongoing open mic where, I don't remember, there was a process. Not anybody could do it, but it wasn't like I was getting paid or anything. But I would do that pretty frequently, but I would just be playing like, you know, Radiohead covers or whatever to these leather clad, beefy people. And um, alone? Alone, yeah. I mean, I'd have a friend there maybe playing playing next or something, but I'd play like five songs per, per set, or, you know, and then come back the next week and do it again. Uh, everyone is super nice and, you know, encouraging, but it was a way to kind of realize that being a performing musician, there's, it's, it's not as easy as it looks in a lot of ways. So because of crowd reaction or what do you mean? I think just because there's a lot more that goes into it than just being creative and being able to play guitar and being able to kind of carry a tune. I think there's a lot more to performance than just, I think there's a lot of personality aspects of it and a lot of, um, a lot of like sort of really nuanced gray area skill sets that, uh, you know, some people have or don't have, but also that some people know, learn how to develop or not develop that I was not developing. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you writing lyrics though to original songs in high school? Or they were all covers. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I was writing lyrics uh, and some and some songs, but I mean, in terms of my performing, maybe I performed a few originals, but it was mostly covers because it just felt kind of safer to have the shield of that when I was up on that wooden stool and that kind of crappy amp and all that. So, were those poems? I mean, were those poems though? Oh um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think they're from the same spirit as lyric poetry comes from, you know uh condensed kind of musical language accompanying a you know a guitar or a lyre or whatever i think it's in the spirit of it but so i guess they were poems but they were just really bad poems you do you have any of them anymore lord no so you started getting interested in poetry sophomore year and then did you were you what were you an english undergrad yeah i became that yeah i didn't go into college um as an english major but then i i kind of i think after my sophomore year i decided to do that and you were reading it and i guess probably like studying poetry i mean but did you also start writing it sophomore year or when did that when did you start writing it in like earnest i guess oh i think that was probably yeah that was maybe towards the end of sophomore year or the beginning of junior year when i just took a uh, poetry workshop class because um or actually it was an introduction to creative writing class first where we did poetry and prose um, because I um, was just interested in studying it all. I had no designs on being a writer. I just liked, I just, at that point, I just knew I liked literature, which I'd never liked before throughout high school. I'd never even um, paid much attention to it. And so it was sort of a, an awakening to really liking um, short stories and novels and plays and poems. And so I really liked the modern poetry class. Um, I thought that uh, writing short stories just seemed like it might be easier or something, um, which is not the case I've learned. But Easier, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, because poetry seemed intimidating in a lot of ways, but I liked it. That's why I liked it more. But um, in my in my in my uh, introduction to creative writing course, we had this um, great teacher who was Texan in a lot of ways, and he would bring these like uh, Justin boot boxes, these really big boot boxes um, the first week of class and pass them around. And they were filled with uh, old fashioned rejection slips at that time. This was in the early ish 2000s, just showing us what the life of a writer was like. But um, I had to write poetry and short stories in that class. And he's his leader, his teaching, I guess, and my experience there let me know I was much more capable as a poet than a short story writer. So then I kind of went from there. This is junior year? Probably, probably like, yeah, probably early junior year. And what school were you at? This is Texas State University, which is in San Marcos, Texas, uh, sort of the edge of the beautiful Texas Hill Country. It's about, it's not quite midway, but it's between Austin and San Antonio. Okay. Yeah. And there's an MFA program there as well, which is where I ended up doing my MFA at. And yeah, and it's a program that might not be on the stature of like an Iowa or a UMass, but it's um, still has a really great infrastructure and it's been there for a long time since 91, I believe. So it was really nice to be situated in a school that had that infrastructure without me even knowing it. And so you graduate with your degree in English. I mean, was there like a literature, creative writing focus or? Yeah, I don't remember if there was a focus or not, but I also, I also became an honor student, uh, not initially, but like halfway through my college career there. And yeah, so I, I remember I did an honors thesis that was a poetry manuscript, a short poetry manuscript. Um, but I think my... <laughs> My English degree was just in English. And I mean, one of the things, like when I, I don't have an MFA, but I have an MA and I, I didn't realize when I was younger, cause I was kind of dumb. I mean, that people really apply to different programs, see about different funding options, look into like, who's going to be their teachers. Is this teacher going to be on sabbatical? Like, I guess I've been, and I, this was a while. I mean, I got my MA in 2008. Did you apply to a lot of programs? Did you, were you very systematic? Like I'm going to be a master's in master poet now. And I'm going to like do the thing or did you, cause you went BA and MFA at the same place, right? Correct. Yeah. So it was, I did take a very systematic approach to it, but it was also incredibly naive because I didn't realize how competitive these programs were, even though I had good teachers and advisors letting me know that. But um, I didn't know exactly, I didn't have grand designs on if I'd become you know, a published poet or whatever. I just knew I really liked it and it was something that I could possibly um, maybe get paid a little bit for and gain some experience with in a, in a graduate program. So it kind of seemed like the best avenue that I could take. So yeah, I ended up applying to something like it, it was, I remember it was a lot, it cost a lot of money to do this, which hurt also, but it was, I think 20 programs that I applied to, but I applied to mostly all the big ones um, with these, I don't know, sort of naive, naive hopes 
And I only got into one and it was Texas State, um, you know, the place I was already at. So um, thankfully, it was, you know, created a soft landing. I already knew the the lay of the land there. And I think it really helped me situate myself as a writer because there the program is a three-year program, which was also really helpful because for me, the first year was just a lot of crashing and burning. And I now in retrospect, I couldn't imagine being in a program like a two-year program where I had moved across the country. And just my first year was like all that transition plus moving. It just seems like it would have um, not been as helpful for, for me to become you know, the writer that I wanted to be or whatever. So yeah, the first year was just a lot of sort of awkward transitional uh, learning things on the fly. And then my second and third years were the years where I felt like, okay, now I, f- I feel like maybe I am, you know, a writer, even a poet. And I have, you know, haven't figured anything out necessarily, but I, I, I see what it means to, to live that life and to be that and to identify as that. So, but I mean, you were persistent because I guess if you literally applied to 20 programs and you only got into one, so you rejected from 19, that might kind of push someone down and be like, well, maybe this isn't like kind of the path for me. If you just came into kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I guess a realization that you were interested in it like two, two, three years before, but that didn't stop you, I guess. For sure. Yeah. Which I think is also maybe some naivete at play, but I'm kind of, my, right. my personality is kind of like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen adaptation that Charlie Kaufman film, but Chris Cooper plays this character who's like, he's like, he's always sort of obsessed with something or scheming something. And then there's this scene where he's like telling another character about, how when he was a child, he was obsessed with fish and fish tanks. And he like had invested like all this time and money and hustled to make money to just have all these fish. And then one day he's just like, you know, I'm done with fish and like moved on to something else. And so I'm, I'm kind of fuck fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have seen it. I have. So I kind of, I, I really identify with that strain of his personality just because I've been interested in a lot of things in my life that have just, I've completely forgotten about now, but then there's been this uh, sort of a handful of things that have stuck. And for the things that have stuck, uh, I get, it's a personality trait. I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, but for the things that have stuck, I'm, I'm just really incredibly stubborn with them sometimes to my detriment. And I think, you know, poetry and writing and, and, um, literature is just the thing that I, gives me the most drive um, in terms of anything outside of being, you know, a parent or a decently good person. Otherwise like poetry and writing and literature is it. And so, yeah, I think, I think my stubbornness has definitely come through with, with that in my life. Well, I mean, I think the life of a writer is rejection, right? I mean, so if you give up early, you you kind of, that's maybe meant to be. For sure. Right, right. Yeah. Controlling your own destiny in a way in terms of what your personality, right, is willing to deal with or not. So you you did the MFA at Texas State. And I mean, I know you, you edited the journal Front Porch, right? Yeah, I was the poetry editor for that for a year. 
and I, I worked on it for a couple of years too. Yeah. And Front Porch is the literary magazine. It's a national magazine, but it's out of Texas State, right? Correct. Yeah, it just started. I think a year or two prior to my arrival there. It's called Porterhouse Review now. Porterhouse Review. I like Front Porch better. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'll give them a call. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So you it's a three year program. Um, you're editing, and you 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 had some mentors there, right? I mean, some professors that were very important to you. Absolutely, yeah. Who were they, and what role did they play? Well, one professor who's who was important for me uh, as an undergraduate and in my MFA program uh, is named Cyrus Cassells, and he um, was. I think like when I took the undergraduate advanced poetry workshop for the first time, he was the teacher for that. And even back then, he introduced us to a lot of really great books that I return to now uh, still. Like I remember, I think as an undergraduate reading um, Richard Sykin's Crush and um, Anne Carson's Autobiography of Red. And uh, like, I mean, what else? Some interesting philosophical texts too. So stuff that I just wasn't getting in any other class. And he also um, was really, I think, patient and helpful with me in terms of, you know, I was writing kind of really weird things that uh, as a teacher now, you know, I really wouldn't, you know, it's, I really wouldn't know what to say in terms of feedback. Um, but he was really patient and graceful with me and really encouraging and, um, you know, helps me with my grad applications a lot. And so then I, you know, I had him as a grad, as an MFA teacher as well. But then, and in my MFA program, um, I had a lot of great teachers, a lot of great literature teachers, because we had to take a certain amount of literature classes as well, which I really am happy about. But my, uh, the other two poets who were really influential for me were uh, Steve Wilson, uh, who um, was also a pretty serious scholar uh, of beat literature and uh, uh, women's and gender studies. And um, yeah, he had a, a, a really uh, caring, but also intimidating um, uh, presence. And it was really instructive, really helpful in terms of, I think, helping myself take myself seriously. And uh, so he was really elemental for my growth. And then another mentor of mine there uh, is Kathleen Pierce, P-E-I-R-C-E. And um, she's somebody whose poems I, I return to quite often. Uh, I think they're quite, you know, oracular and uh, mystical. And she as a teacher is sort of that way too. Um, she also kind of gave me a lot of confidence that I wouldn't have been able to have in myself otherwise. And um, also was intimidating in some ways uh, that were different from Steve, but uh, complimented, I think, uh, his teaching as well. And yeah, so yeah, the, the experience with them really helps, helps me become, you know, whatever it is I am now. And what was it like editing that journal? And I know, I mean, did you solicit authors? Did you like get a, a greater sense of contemporary poetry and whatever was was it like twenty twenty ten or something or two thousand and eight? This would have been like 
I did my MFA 06 to 09, so it probably would have been like 08, 09. And uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we were getting submissions, some really great submissions. And uh, we were, um, when I became poetry editor, I was able to solicit some people also. So it definitely, I mean, I think I was already reading pretty voraciously, even as a late undergraduate in terms of contemporary poetry, but even more so just the more and more I got into my MFA. Um, and so, yeah, I remember, I don't remember all, everybody who I solicited, but I feel like I was able to solicit one or two write, one or two poets per issue. And then we'd have, you know, maybe five or six fill out the, fill out the rest from the submissions. But I, I do remember that we, I solicited Heather Crystal, um, for one issue, but that was really nice. It was really instructive there because doing that, because, um, it, I don't come from a literary background or a literary household at all. I, my friends growing up were not, you know, I do not come from artistic circles at all. And so learning kind of how um, social circle, social circles within artistic communities can operate, um, uh, learning that you can just email people to ask if they want to publish poems in your journal or whatever, and you can create relationships based on that. Um, it was really, really, really great and really eye-opening for me and makes made me then and continues to make me you know love the life of being a writer and, a, and an artist so you're in san marcos i mean you're at texas state for a while i mean i guess seven years right yeah it was actually it was actually eight years because I, I took like yeah so I had I took a fifth year to graduate undergraduate also yeah but I well I, I lived in San Marcos for five years and then I moved to Austin for the three years during my MFA which is about a it's like 25 30 miles north of San Marcos and so then during my MFA I would just commute from Austin and I mean the MFA I guess back then maybe not so much but I mean it was. I mean, it was still the terminal degree. I mean, there's still in 2009, I mean, there were PhD programs with a focus in creative writing, but there weren't, I don't think there were as many as there are now. After or starting the third year, were you like, this is it? Now I'm going to go get a job or going to go try and teach or because or, you ended up going to PhD school at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. But what, how did that process unfold? Um, I... During my third year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that I had fallen even more deeply in love with making poems and trying to make a life out of that, but I didn't know what that could look like exactly. So um, going into my MFA, I didn't even know that I really wanted to teach. Just teaching was part of it. Um, I thought that I would try it and see what happens, see what, what might come of it, but I ended up really liking and enjoying teaching. Um learned that that could actually feed my writing in a lot of ways and vice versa. So uh, in my third year, I realized, well, I could, you know, the options for me right now are given what I want to do. I could just try to adjunct classes the next year, or I could apply to this thing called a PhD in creative writing. I thought about applying to some, P some literary PhDs also, but Although I was interested in a lot of that work, it just doesn't didn't excite me as much as doing a creative dissertation did. So I thought that I would apply to a few programs and um, see what happened. And if not, I would just adjunct um, classes around the 
Austin and San Antonio area and then kind of reevaluate after a year. And so then, yeah, that's how I ended up at Nebraska, uh, being a fellow Cornhusker with the likes of you. Did you apply to a bunch of programs again? No, I only applied to um, four, I think. And they were all sort of like centrally located in, in the U.S. Um, well, not yeah, 20. sort of like, no, not 20. No, not, no. Yeah. We sort of, at the time, I had sort of family considerations in terms of not wanting to live too far uh, at that at that juncture. So, yeah, without those, I probably would have applied to more. But because I was being geographically select, it was just the four. You were married at that point? Yep. Okay. So had you ever been to Nebraska before you went there? No. You visited before, right? You visited to, to get a scent lay of the land before you went or? Yeah. Yeah. I visited, I visited like the spring before I graduated the, the MFA, just after I got accepted, just to see what it was like. And I remember, yeah, I think I flew into, yeah, I flew into Omaha and drove from Omaha to Lincoln, which is like a 45 minute drive or so. And there's just lots of expansive field, cornfields and soybean fields. And, uh, and wheat fields and just thinking like, wow, there's really nothing out here. Uh, but then once you, you know, go, go South into Lincoln, you see, Oh, there's, it's, there's a, you know, decently sized city here. It's, it's pretty cool. And then even though the weather was really bad when I visited, I think it was like mid April or something. It happened. It was colder that month there. Uh, I thought the city was cool and it, I was, I thought it would be a great opportunity. So you, you started that program and, what was that experience like being, I guess, a more fully developed, now you're a doctoral student, but you are in a new place and, yeah. you know, it's, it's must be, must've been very different than San Marco. I mean, you were in the same program for eight years. I mean, was that like culture shock? Did that change your poetry? What was like, kind of like community like, cause you were kind of on different territory as compared to being from Texas school in Texas. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's not that much culturally different. Um, I realized at least the sort of Western edge of the Midwest, you know, I can't speak for, you know, like Ohio, Illinois and whatnot, but at least Nebraska is not so different from Texas in terms of there being a large, you know, rural kind of ranching culture that sort of permeates uh everything but i i mean my poetry for sure changed just because it was a big transition the first time i've i've ever lived outside of texas my whole life and uh, the first time getting used to a uh you know a decently cold winter i remember my the first winter was it was in 09 and it was a i guess a kind of historically bad one we had got a lot of snow and I remember being in my driveway, shoveling it with a, a garden shovel. And my neighbor came out and was like, hey, you want to borrow my uh, snowblower? And I was like, sure, thanks. Um, and I think I remember that time also, it was sort of I, my identity as a poet and writer. Yeah, I was also asking myself, like, what kind of poems do I want to write? Or I was just trying to write and not think about it too much. But I kept coming back to that question when I'd be maybe unhappy with what I was writing. And I think eventually I just kind of learned that for me, place as a writer really informs my writing, whether it comes out in the poems or the writing or not. 
but I dwell on it a lot. I think about it a lot. And so once I just realized, um, uh, that I just needed to embrace, you know, my, my physical surroundings, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, letting, letting, trying to create a symbiotic relationship between my writing process and my thinking, um, and, and the place itself. Uh, that's when I think I've I kind of something clicked and I have learned to just use that going forward in the writing I've been doing since. The, the other thing, the other thing I was going to say, the other thing too, about, uh, the PhD program that was a lot different was there was just, um, you know, there's a different culture around a PhD program in my experience, at least than the MFA program, because it was a lot more oriented towards professionalization and whatnot, which is great because, you know, it can help folks who want to continue academic careers do that, but it felt less like an art program and more like a professional program um, in a lot of ways, which it, which it, which it is. And now, did you send out your thesis, your MFA thesis, to contests? Did you try and get it published? No, I sent out um, a small segment of it as a chapbook manuscript. Um, I think I think I had a version of that at the beginning of my third year in the MFA, and so I, I started sending that out, and I continued that <clears throat> my first year at Nebraska. And, you know, it got a, a couple finalist things here and there, but I did not, even though I had a full length manuscript as my MFA thesis, I did not feel like it was what I wanted to put into the world as a potential first book. And I don't think it would have gotten published anyway, had I sent it out. But when you did get to Nebraska, I mean, we shared an office, I mean, that whole time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I still remember when... I think it was your first semester, but it might have been your second semester when you got a poem accepted by Washington Square. Yeah. Which I think is the first poem in your first book. But it does, or it did seem to me like once you had got to the program that you, that the program at Nebraska, that you kind of were publishing in, in noted journals throughout. I mean, even from the get go, that you were somewhat fully formed. Um, maybe, I mean, in some ways, I, I don't know, I should say too, for anybody listening that you were also publishing because in fact, uh, we, I think had a poem in the same issue of Denver quarterly, which was a, which was a poem that I submitted when I was living in Texas. And then when it came out, we, we happened to be sharing an office together and, and we had a poem in the same issue. Um, yeah, so I was publishing uh, a little bit in my last two years of my MFA. I didn't start sending until then, but so I'd gotten used to the the grind or whatever of sending out and getting rejected and, you know, withdrawing stuff when you'd get the occasional acceptance or whatever. So, yeah, I think I came to Nebraska fully formed in terms of like, a, you know, submission practice. I just hadn't sent out a full length book yet that... Um, you know, that, that, that came and, a little bit later. But you, you did like, we co-curated a reading series in Lincoln. You published a collaborative chat book, one or two. Yeah. I published two chat books and one collaborative chat book. So, you were, so you were doing kind of a lot of community based things, um, as well as your own individual yeah. things. Um, and you know, 
when did you start sending out your first book, Thought That Nature? I start, started sending that out, I think, um, like late summer after my second year in the PhD. So that would have been 2011, I think. You started sending it out. And again, my recollection, I remember that it got was like a finalist at some places, well-regarded places, and then got accepted really quickly. Yeah, so I started I started sending it out, I think, like in August, maybe maybe July even of that summer. And then by the um so then then in May of that year, so whatever year that would have been, in May is when I, I heard from Saraband that it, that it won their contest. So it took I mean, this is yeah, like I said, I feel very, very lucky for this, but yeah, it ended up being roughly like July or August until May. So like nine or 10 months. Yeah. And that was your third year of the program. Yeah. And so Cole Swenson chose it. Um, it came out in 2014, but was winner of the 2012 Catherine A. Morton prize in poetry. What was, what was it like putting that together and what was it like getting it accepted somewhat quickly and then having it kind of go out, well, it was going to go out in the world while you were still kind of ensconced in an, an act, you know, in a program. So, I mean, putting it together, uh, I kind of used that summer to just dedicate like my main task. My main goal that summer was just to put that manuscript together. Um, there's, I don't know how many pages, there's maybe 15 to 20 pages in that manuscript that come from my MFA thesis, but the rest is all um, newer material than, than that was. So I kind of took the material that I thought that I liked the most from my MFA thesis, but that I also thought was in conversation with what I was, had been working on for the subsequent two plus years, um, you know, moving to and living in Nebraska. So, yeah. So for me, putting that manuscript together, uh, I put a version of it together. You just, you know, kind of coding a lot of things like coding, you know, trying to identify, you know, all the kind of clerical office work that one can do when they put a manuscript together if they're uh, neurotic like I can be sometimes. But, you know, thinking about like, all right, which poems are in first person versus second person versus third poem, third person, you know, which poems are sort of lighter, which poems are more uh, maybe dark or sinister, you know, past tense, future tense, present tense. Um, thinking about like those kinds of things, just in terms of like pacing a manuscript. So I was just doing a lot of sort of like coding like that. I mean, by hand, I had the I had different iterations of it printed out, and so then I came to a like a first draft um, that summer that I started sending out late summer, and then it was getting rejected. It did get I think one or two finalist nods, but uh, enough to where. Over that winter break, I think I, I was I was retooling it again, and so then when January came, I I was sending out a slightly revised version. It wasn't substantially revised, but it was the you know the order and the structure was slightly revised, and so then that's when it um, and that's when it uh, won that contest. And yeah, I don't know. It was incredibly exciting. It felt it felt like it could be life-changing in some ways uh, to have a book in the world, the world. It felt affirming for sure. Um, it felt like in terms of, if I kept trying to teach in academia, it could be, it could be helpful for that as well. But I mean, the, the main thing I was just happy about was it felt like the, 
a great payoff of, you know, trying my hand at something since I was 19 or 20. And then I, at that time, I think I was 29. Um, so nine years later, I, I kind of see like this, this, this thing come to fruition. And that felt really great. Uh, and super exciting. Now, yeah, coming out in terms of a during my time of still being a PhD student was kind of interesting because I was finishing up my, after I finished my fourth year of the PhD at Nebraska, I got a fellowship for my dissertation so that I could, um, I didn't have to teach that year. So we moved back to Texas, to San Marcos to live, to live there. And so when it came out, uh, I was living in San Marcos and, um, yeah, it felt great to hold the book for the first time. Um, and I did some readings, but it also felt kind of, in retrospect, uh, it felt maybe not as great as, as as some book releases can feel because I was in such a time of transition. I didn't have a huge community because I had just moved to back to San Marcos and all the people I knew from then were mostly gone. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it uh it felt kind of fractured in a way it was great to have this book out but kind of felt fractured in the landing of it and um so i think one of the things i learned from that was just how important all that community building that i did with you and with others in nebraska um you know just how how nice it is to do that work so that way um you, you know you can celebrate folks properly and then you can be part of that conversation when those rare moments occur for you as well. Um, yeah. Do you remember who you were reading when you put that book together? Because your first book is very different than your second book, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. I mean, do you, I mean, it's more, you know, your first thought that nature, it's more kind of invested in the fragment. It's more invested in the moment. It's not super invested in narrative. Um, it, it's, I guess, lyrical in places but the the personal you know the 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 i the, the speaker very much doesn't seem like it's kind of fully embodying your own living breathing human being person i mean i could be wrong about that it's invested in language um and i guess since auto oblivion your second book does seem substantially different i mean were there writers back then that you were really touchstoning for sure. Yeah. Just, uh, it took me a minute to kind of remember that, but I, um, I mean, I remember back then I was more invested in, yeah, right. You know, sort of putting pressure and exploring language and I was actively trying to avoid a lot of personal in my writing for, I don't know, all kinds of reasons, but a lot of the writers that I was really obsessed with at that point, were also writers who were really invested in language. I mean, I, I still love, but I, at that point, I really, really loved Lorraine Niedeker. She was really, really important to me um, in her writing, but also just her life. But um, there's a poem that I mentioned her name in, in Thought That Nature. Uh, and I also mentioned George Oppen, who was uh, an important poet for me back then as well. Uh, still is in a lot of ways. and. Um, the poet Francis Ponge, who I still admire quite a bit. I was reading a lot of him during that book. I'm trying to think of if there are any others, but I think, yeah, a lot of poets who were 
heavily invested in, you know, intense lyricism. And I remember Lynn Hedginian's um, critical book. I don't recall the title now, but that was uh, sort of at the forefront of my mind. Um, Does that book have the refusal of closure in it, maybe, that essay? I, I believe so. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, that book. And then um, that that's that critical study of surrealism, I think it's by Mary Anna. Oz. No, this one's by like Anna Balakane or something like yeah. that. I can't remember her name. But yeah, so those are a lot of the things that were circling around my mind at that time, for sure. And so the book comes out, you're back in San Marcos. Um, and you know, one of the things, I guess, when you were still at Nebraska, which I've always thought of with you as a famous poet came to Nebraska and you were in like a short workshop with them and they read one of your poems in this workshop and they said, you can tell me, I mean, I won't name the poet, but they said, I feel sorry for this poet's soul. Or what did they say exactly? Yeah. So it was an anonymous workshop with Lee Young Lee and um, it was a it was a two week workshop, but we were doing for this one week anonymous workshop. So nobody knew who, who wrote the poems. And I had this short poem. This was at the point when I was trying to, I think, transition to writing some new work. Cause at that point thought that nature hadn't come out yet, but it had been accepted. And so I was trying to find my way towards a new direction and what I wanted to do for a future book. So I was just messing around a lot, but I, but I felt proud enough of this poem to bring it in. And it was a short thing. And yeah, he read it aloud and read it again. And he, he, for me, he was an incredibly instructive teacher and a really, really helpful presence for me. Uh, it, including this time when he kind of pauses really seriously and dramatically and says something along the lines of, it's clear that this poet, you know, knows how to write a beautiful and elegant sentence and has a sense of shape and sound and what a poem can do. But I have to say, I'm really worried about this poet's soul. And it's not, if the poet continues down this path, it's not going to lead to anything sustainable. And um, so it, you know, when he said that, I was kind of sinking in my chair. My, I, I was trying to like not look obvious that it was me, but it was a good moment for me. Well, what, what, you know, I guess I mark that as the transition between thought that nature and auto oblivion. What did he mean? I mean, like, because at the time you were annoyed, like, but you've said subsequently years later that you found that very instructive. Like, yeah, I think, well, so I'm sort of, by nature, I'm kind of a nihilist, but I'm also some in some ways an optimist like so i don't know if there's a i think there is a word for this one of one of my brilliant students mentioned this recently i don't remember the word though but somebody who can be both an optimist and a nihilist at the same time so i think what he was getting at was i think the poem that i brought in was was probably real clever and real uh sort of I remember there was a lot of negations in it, you know, a lot of taking away rather than like giving, giving or adding. And so I think what he was onto was just like, 
your nihilism, if unchecked, is is not going to lead you to places that are going to be helpful for you in the future as a person. And so I, I, that's what I'm guessing. And so I think that for me, it kind of not at the, in the moment, but eventually led me to really think about the what was at stake with what I was writing in the future um, for me, but for other for other people too, perhaps. And it just kind of allowed me to find my way into directions that have become more sustainable and have led me to be able to write things that I uh, am, am glad that I'm writing. So Thought That Nature comes out in 2014. The work was written, though, from as far back as 2011, 2010 through 2012. Well, some of those poems were even like 2007, 8, 9. So, okay. And then your new book, your second book, Auto Oblivion, comes out in 2023. So, nine-year gap. And, you know... These books are by two different poets. So I guess throughout that, those nine years, I mean, I guess a lot of life happened, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, moving back to Texas, moving to Oklahoma, moving back to Nebraska, going through a divorce, um, you know, raising a daughter who is now 12. Um yeah, lots of life has happened. And those poems and the poems in Auto Oblivion date back to as early as 2013, I think. And so after Thought That Nature got published, um, you know, you were kind of on a fast track where you, you well, I mean, I guess I, I saw it that you got a book, you got chapbooks accepted, you were having poems accepted in prestigious journals, you got, you won a kind of well-known first book prize. Did you have a manuscript, a new manuscript ready to go by 2017 or 2016? I mean, were you, I, I know you were working and I know you were, you, because you taught at Oklahoma State at one point, you were a visiting assistant professor. When did you get your current mm -hmm. job at Creighton? Uh, fall 2016 is when I started. Okay, so. So. But did you have a book like soon after the publication of your of Thought That Nature, your first book, which came out in 2014? No, not soon after. I think it took me, I think it was 2018 or maybe probably 2019 when I when I had a first draft of a, of a manuscript that I felt confident enough to start sending out. Um, so that was it, in my head. It took me about 10 years to, to make this book. And it took about six years to make the first draft of it throughout that time. I mean, were you happy with the reception of thought that nature? Um, sure. I mean, I think, you know, every writer probably wishes maybe their work might have made a larger impact or something like that. But I mean, you had a young child, you had a, you have different jobs, your things were going on. Yeah. But I think, you know, it was it was the book I, I needed to write. It was the best book I could have written in that time span. And um, it came out with a, a press that I admire a lot. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think for me, that's kind of the most I can ask. Everything else is sort of beyond my control. So, yeah, I think I was happy enough with the reception for sure. And so you started sending 
your your latest book out 2019 2020 yeah I, I would say could have been as late as like late 2018 or as early as late 2018 but yeah now and i mean i said earlier that these books are by two different poets and i don't i mean i guess they're there's obviously through lines but you know auto oblivion we always think in poetry that the speaker isn't doesn't necessarily have you know a whole lot to necessarily do with the person writing the poem, and that can be completely true sometimes, and completely untrue. But I will say, in certain of these poems, it does seem like there is if thought that nature did not have a lot of kind of eye based personhood from Trey Moody coming through, like it's very different in this book. Yeah. And, and that, that, that became intentional. Um, as early as 2013, a couple of the poems in here that survived all these years that are still in the book, um, are poems that are personal. And, um, that was me intentionally trying to write in a different way than I had before. Cause I, I just felt like I needed to, uh, grow a bit as a writer and a person and that was one way I figured I could start trying to do that. And yeah, with this book, I mean, th this book went through uh, at least two other titles as well um, in previous drafts of it. But with Auto Oblivion, I mean, I wanted to try to get that sense of possibly autobiography, but also obviously with that word oblivion in there. So a lot of these poems are... Uh, in ways true to life, accurate or real, but a lot of them, a lot of them also aren't, but they might be framed as though they are. And so there's, there's a bit, a bit of playing with, uh, fact and fiction in some regards, although some of it is quite, quite true to life. And I, I think as this, as the poems I was writing progressed in conversation with each other for this book, I kind of learned ways where I learned that the container could be a space where I played with um real to me things but also also things that didn't have to be real but they could be framed as such sure um now was the process of putting this book together substantially different than your first book or was it you're writing poems then you put them in a collection see where they bounce off one another see where they don't or what was it like because i'm also you weren't I guess you were teaching in an academic program, but, you know, when we were in grad school, I just remember our different professors saying, you know, like every book's a project based book, you know, and uh, whether you have to anchor your reader with recurring images or recurring kind of like language. I mean, what was it like putting this together when you weren't, I guess, a student? Yeah, it was a lot different by nature just because, um, I guess the first couple of years are exempt from this, but every other year, the poems I was writing, uh, I was writing at the same time I was being a full-time, you know, teacher uh, of some, of some capacity. So I just wasn't writing at the same clip as I was when I was a student. I had, I didn't have teachers, you know, telling me to write or whatever. So uh, I just wasn't writing at the same voracious clip as I, as I had been. So it kind of, it just took a few years of recalibration plus with my daughter growing up uh, to be a little older um, and a, a bit, a bit autonomous herself uh, led to this as well. But so Writing at a slower clip made the project feel well. I don't even think of it as a project, really. Um, just made the made the collection 
what it ended up becoming feel quite different than um, thought that nature because it was me really gathering poems that would speak together along the course of many years. So, which is to say many different selves, like you mentioned earlier. Um, when I came up with the draft, what was really different about this one is just it's um, when I came up with that first draft and began sending it out, it just wasn't getting a, uh, taken by any publishers. Um, over the, I think it, it went through three major changes. And the first one was pretty, I think I got one or two decent responses. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty not great. The second version, um, I started getting quite a bit more finalist nods and whatnot, but it was really, really different. And I was writing new poems and cycling out old poems, adding new poems. It was really, really different. And then this, the third version, which is pretty much the version that it's published as now, um, was really different as well, because a lot of poems I, I cut and then a lot of poems I added. So this feels a lot different just because it took, it took about four years of sending it out, really, until it landed somewhere. And so by that nature, it feels like it was much different than uh, thought that nature. It allowed me, though, I think, to dwell on it as a book more than I did with thought that nature. So I think that this book maybe feels more like a, a cohesive book in some ways than thought that nature might. Yeah. And one thought that nature did have work from different chat books, just put in a bigger book. Right. And this that's not the case with this. There weren't any chat books that now was that process though, a little disheartening too, though, because you're finalists at some places, some places you're semi-finalists, some places you're maybe nothing. It's taking years. You know, a lot of the poems in this manuscript were published in really notable places like the Atlantic, the believer conduit who published the book. Gulf Coast, New England Review. I mean, you kind of name it. I mean, did you think that the publishing landscape had changed? Did Were you just, I don't know. how Because your first book, again, I, from an outside perspective, came together very quickly and was published very quickly. And that was that, I guess. And it seems like with this, it wasn't the case. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, I mean, I think the publishing landscape is always changing and shifting in different ways. And I think, I mean, for me, at least, it's impossible to try to think about what I'm writing in terms of how it may or may not fit in the publishing landscape, at least with the kind of work I do. So for me, that wasn't really that much of a consideration, um, you know, because I don't I, I wouldn't want that to distract from the poems I felt I wanted or needed to write. But, um, it, you know, I, I guess, yeah, having some of these poems placed in journals um, that I've been submitting to for years and years without success and then getting some of that success and then sending a book out, a manuscript out, um, you know, that was getting rejected. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was kind of frustrating in some ways for sure. I would get down sometimes, but the, I get, like I said earlier, the sometimes problematic, sometimes helpful personality trait of mine in terms of, the ways in which I can be stubborn, I think it, I just, I just end up, ended up using those, those no's as motivation to try to, try to just grow and make something better. And so what I would kind of do was, would be, I, I would sort of send out a man, a version of the manuscripts on an academic cycle, year cycle. So like August through, through August or whatever. 
or really August through May. And then depending on how that went, I would take the summers to really overhaul the manuscripts. And so I would just use all that kind of frustration over the course of the academic year to uh, motivate my, my desire to make something better um, the next, the next summer. And then I, by that point, I would always have new poems that I had written over the year to cycle back in there. So frustrating, yes, but luckily, at least for now, I'm somebody who I can filter that frustration into, into motivation. And you, you did make a kind of conscious effort to write different work or it came about organically for this book? Well, I wanted to write, like I said earlier, as early as 2013, I wanted to shift something in my writing and just to, in order to partially grow as a writer and as a human. So I, I started trying to be vulnerable in autobiographical or personal ways that I had always been afraid of in the past um, and really put pressure on why I had been afraid of that or why, why I was maybe attracted to work that didn't do that in the past as much because I was growing and starting to like work more that did that. And for me, I think it has a lot to do with, uh, my daughter was born in 2011 and yeah, just being, being a primary caretaker of hers for this, these 12 years now. Um, I, I don't know, just something about that relationship of, of sort of shepherding a human being into the world, knowing you're at some point you're going to really have no control over anything. And even now, what, what, what do we really have control over? And thinking about my relationship with my daughter um, has just asked, forced me to think a lot about why I write and what I write and what gives me sustenance and what might give a reader sustenance. And so, you know, I think I just, it, something about my relationship with, with my daughter has really shifted within me the ways I think about um, my poems possibly reaching readers, which I've always thought about, but I just think about it a little bit differently now. Not so much, like I said earlier, to like fit into like a marketplace niche or something like that. Like, that's not what I'm interested in, but just like, you know, somebody like me who might open a journal or a book and come across one of these poems and be able to connect with it in, in real and personal ways. That's the kind of considerations for a reader that I've, that have evolved in my life as a writer. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this book is to use a word, I mean, more accessible. Yeah. Like it's more, there's prose, it's more narrative. Um, you know, some of these are just like, you can essays essentially i mean maybe not that many but I'm, the the natural natural history of rivers there are you know a story about death where if you called that a lyric essay no one would bat an eye um, right yeah you know this book is also dedicated to your daughter charlotte and she fictional versions or versions of her do show up kind of in throughout the book yep nervous about that <sighs> Not really, because I've been showing her and reading to her these poems at times as, I, as I've been writing them over these last years so much. And she's heard me read these at, at readings so often. Um, and, you know, I've asked her if she feels OK about being in my poems and especially when they're published and things like that. And she she thinks it's she she sort of she sort of gets a kick out of it. She likes it uh, in a lot of ways. And so that's helped me feel 
pretty confident about everything in ways that maybe another writer might not be able to feel so confident. But and you do big... ask, you do share with, you share the material with her. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She's a big part of my life. Like the, the, she's the anchor of my life in almost every way. So it would just, it feels, that's kind of what I gravitate towards writing about, what I have gravitated towards writing about these last 10 years. So it's nice that I can, you know, not have to kind of hide that facet of my life away in it, or whatever. Now the book takes as it, as its epigraph, um, uh, a sentence, a comment by Agnes Martin, the, the artist, I wish the idea of time would drain out of myself and leave me quiet, even on the shore. And I, I know, I mean, Agnes Martin, I know is one of your favorite painters. So I guess just to end, why did you, why'd you use this epigraph? What, what did it kind of offer the, the reader into the book? Well, in thinking about what this book could be um, over the course of several iterations, what I wanted it to be, I kind of distilled it into being a book about, um, you know, grieving the loss of my dad at a young age, um, confronting the challenges of raising a child and, you know, what uh, a lot of scientists might call the Anthropocene, this epic of human uh, shaping of the, of the climate. Um, and, and not knowing, you know, what's going to be up ahead of us. I often will sort of doom scroll with like Reddit posts about places to live with the coming, uh, the ongoing climate disaster we're in. And, you know, they'll be like, by 2050, this is going to happen. By 2090, this is going to happen, but you know, whatever. But these might be affected by these other variables. So it might happen sooner or it might happen later. And so it's just really hard to know for sure. I mean, we're already seeing all kinds of climate migration around the world. And obviously the most vulnerable of the world's population will be affected the most uh, in that and already is. But just thinking about like raising this daughter who... Uh, whose lifetime, I, I mean, I can't predict my life, the rest of my lifetime, what the world will look like, let alone hers. And so just thinking about what, you know, how to process that as a person, as a parent, um, has, has me thinking a lot about time and uh, these aspects of just how little humankind has been a part of Earth's geologic time. And so... I think with Agnes Martin, with this epigraph, uh, I wanted to sort of plant that seed. Um, this book is also really about a lot about storytelling and how we tell ourselves stories to sort of prepare for the future um, that we that we can't predict. And so I think Agnes Martin, um, as a painter, is somebody who, I mean, she 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 commented that she wanted her paintings to be religious experiences for people you know she wanted she wanted people to achieve sort of religious connection with her paintings where time is suspended in a lot of ways she always talked about um or often mentioned how to her music is the ideal art form because um it's being non-verbal it's 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 non-representational so like uh you know, a violin playing an E minor can make you feel something, but it corresponds with nothing in the representational world. 
And so thinking about like that distilled um, presence that is absent of time in a way that I kind of connect with that, with those ideas and her paintings, um, I wanted to plant those seeds about, I guess, about how, how, how I and how we think through time uh, and allow it to, I'm speaking personally, allow, allow it sometimes for me to lead to unnecessary worry or whatever, but there's a level of worry that is fruitful and helpful as well. So, yeah, I think, I think time as a, as an abstraction is really interesting and this book has a lot to do with it. So this just came, auto oblivion just came out, I guess, two months ago now. I mean, we're, we're talking on December 4th, but do you have another project already that you're working on you? I mean, what's next? Yeah, for sure. I, um, I've always, I mean, like I said, I always like, it's impossible for me not to think about place in some form or another, but the, the project I want to write next, and it's, it, this is something that I am conceiving of as a project for the first time ever is I, I want to write a, a book length lyric essay, or at least a book length lyric nonfiction, uh, project really centered around grief and water and art. And that's about all I know now. I've written a little bit towards it, taken a lot of notes towards it, have a research, some some research places and, and, and items I'm going to be consulting. But I don't really know how it'll turn out, but that's where I, I like to be. Uh, but I feel like I have more of a plan with this than I ever have before. So I'm excited to see what happens. All right, that was Jeff Ellis and Jolie's conversation with Trey Moody. You can check out a copy of Trey's new book, Auto Oblivion, out now from Conduit Books. And you can also check out what's going on with the reissue of Jeff's novel, And Yet, from Future Tense Books. And don't forget to check out the presses Jeff co-edits, Phonograph Editions, and Bunny Press. And of course, if you haven't yet, checked out our books at Autofocus. Go ahead and do that at autofocuslit.com slash books. It's a great way to support the podcast. Especially if you buy the t-shirt. Just saying. Okay. If you want to support the show, I trust you figured out how to do that by now. So if you'd like to, go do it. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.